Chances are, if you like this, you like other podcasts made by Lush. So you should probably check out the Lush podcast. It's a podcast by Lush about all things that Lush likes to talk about. Need I say more? Subscribe now. Hello, I'm John Robb. I've been a music journalist for many decades. A lot of my work was done for the legendary music paper Sounds. I've got an incredible archive of old interviews. Episode 2 is a live in-conversation I recorded with Patti Smith in Sheffield six years ago when she was out promoting her Just Kids book. It's a great interview with Patti Smith. Herself, like an open book, tells you everything about the proto-punk scene in New York. She tells you everything about herself, that incredibly deep relationship she had with Robert Maplethorpe. There's tears, there's emotion, there's flirtation, there's like a whole like great painting of New York City itself at that time. It's one of my favourite interviews I've ever conducted. Hello, everybody. It's uh, nice to see you. I've never been in Sheffield before, so I'm excited to be here. And, and uh, what? <laughs> what? You have, yeah. Well, I never saw the Ferris wheel before. <laughs> it's a lot different than when I was here before. You're, you're, you're building it up. I'm sorry, I don't, in fact, you know, sometimes I come into my kitchen and say, well, I've never been here before. Has it got a Ferris wheel? (laughs) Actually, with all the dishes piled, it looks like I've never been there before. So it's it's still as dirty as it is in the book. Uh, There's some great descriptions of uh, your room in the book. Oh, no, my room, the messiness of my room was well replaced by my children's rooms. (laughs) Were they worse? Yeah. Well, actually, I was giving my son a very hard time because his room was so terribly messy. And uh, I I thought, I don't know where he gets that from. And recently... (laughs) I was just in Germany and someone had taken a photograph of my loft space when I was about 23 and it made his look meticulous. <laughs> and I thought, it's genetic, that's it. So do you want to talk a bit about when you first went to New York and first met Robert? Uh, let me take my hat off, I'm sorry. Uh, we just drove in and I'm sorry that, uh, when was I in Sheffield before? <laughs> anyone remember? It was there. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> I never know where I am, but it's always a new experience. Um, uh, just a minute, my microphone is feeding back. I'll let them sort that out. Uh, yes, yeah. my microphone is feeding back. Cool. The acoustics are quite good here. I don't think they need all of that It's a proper theater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they probably do plays here, right? Yeah, that's, that's why. The fancy stage set's not just for you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be or not to be. That's a damn question. I mean. <laughs> anyway, uh, New okay. York. I just, yeah. Was he turning it down? Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I came to New York in 1967 uh, when I was 20 years old. I was from... Uh, uh, a very rural part of southern New Jersey um, where there were a lot of pig farms, a square dance hall, um, one small little library, uh, not a very cultural area. So um, coming to New York City, 
um, as an aspiring artist was very exciting. The architecture, the history, the museums, all the bookstores, um, and uh, you know, the diversity was, was very exciting. I love the way in the book you just basically drifted up there with no plan. Hardly the place you're going to stay, you hadn't really you hadn't even rung them up, and you turned up and they weren't there. Well, back then people didn't have telephones. You know, if you were under 30, you couldn't afford a telephone, and it was a different world. You know, um, there were no credit cards, no telephones. Um, most young people didn't have TVs. They didn't. Uh, we didn't own these things. You basically, if you had any money, you bought a little record player because, or a small radio because that kept us all in touch with each other. And uh, I was, uh, it, for me, it was just as I had read, you know, biographies of poets and artists. Arthur Rimbaud never rung up anybody. <laughs> oh, hello, I'm coming to Stuttgart. Do you think uh, could have, he would just like go on foot from Brussels and walk across Europe with no money, no plan, just to see what fate and adventure had in store. So I was ready to do that. So it's, it's quite a romantic idea. Yes, I was very, well, I continue to be very romantic. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and virtually the first person you met was Robert, which is quite amazing. Well, it was, it was uh, I came to, I knew some students at, near Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and I thought maybe they would let me stay at their apartment. But it was summertime, and of course no students are there. Um, my friends had moved anyway, and I came to the flat, and there was a whole new set of people living there. And the fella said, well, go in that room, and there's a, a guy in there. He can maybe help you. And I went in the room, and there was this boy uh, asleep, with all masses of curly hair, sort of George Harrison looking, um, very slim with little beads on his neck, fast asleep. And he heard me and he woke up and he looked up and smiled. And that's my very first impression of Robert, uh, just a, a smiling boy. And um, he helped me find my friends and he was on his way. And Fate brought us back together, though, uh, a second and third time, and, and uh, then we well, became yeah. inseparable. The third time was quite funny because you had that, was it, could you say, blind date or a weird date? Well, it was, some, uh, well I was 20, and uh, uh, I, was, I was on the streets for about three weeks, um, sleeping on the subways and, you know, having a bit of change for food, but uh, I was getting quite hungry, and I was trying to get a job this whole time, Finally got a job in a bookstore, and I was so happy. And that last week was very tough because I had no money left. I actually, when the employees would leave pieces of sandwich or something behind, I would just wait and eat it. I slept in the bathroom. I hid in the bathroom when everybody left the store and slept in the store. And I thought, well, I can deal with this until I get my paycheck and then try to do something, uh, get a place to sleep and get some food. And then the day for our paycheck came and I lined up and there was no envelope because I didn't know about New York laws where they withhold your first paycheck. And I have to say, even though I was a very sturdy, tough kid, I was devastated by this. It was just, I couldn't bear the thought of another week without 
money, food. And, uh, but I had to return back to my post. Uh, and this fella asked me for dinner. And to me, he was like an older man. He was like maybe 28, <laughs> maybe even 30. He had a beard, which, you know, I was, you know, kids didn't have beards back then, you know, and uh, he had a beard and he was a science fiction writer of some fame. And I don't know what he saw in me. I was like just some skinny kid with, you know, long braids. And, but he wanted to take me out for dinner. And my mother had drummed, my mother was such a worry ward, always worrying. Don't talk to strangers, don't talk to strangers, don't talk to strange men. And so I thought, well, if I talk to him enough during the day, would he cease being a stranger? Um, <laughs> I really didn't want to go to dinner with him because he was sort of a little creepy, and, uh, but I was so hungry. So I said yes, and we walked to the Empire State Building. There was a little diner there. And everything seems so expensive. I, I, you know, we were, I was from a lower middle class family, never been in a New York restaurant. And, and, and it was just a diner, but it seemed very expensive. And I'm eating my food in my mother's words, you know, <laughs> don't, don't talk to strangers. And then I thought, all right, he's fed me. He's paid all this money. What's he going to want in return? <laughs> and uh, poor guy. I mean, he wasn't, he was just... Who knows? But we walked, we took a walk down to the East Village. We walked all the way downtown and we were sitting on a bench in Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. And um, he said, uh, I have an apartment up there where I write, want to come up for a cocktail? <laughs> and then it was like, this is it, you know, this is what my mother warned me about, you know. My mother would always be like, don't talk to strangers. Don't get in a strange car. I don't want to see you raped in a field. Even before I knew what rape was, I was like, <laughs> raped in a field. It was like, you know, my mother's favorite phrase. So <laughs> I thought, well, uh, and I was a bit, truthfully, I was a bit scared. I didn't really know how to extricate myself from this situation. And just at that minute, here comes down the path this boy who I didn't even know his name, with all this curly hair and a lot of beads, which they love beads that they wore in the late 60s, just by himself, just walking. And I just impulsively ran up to him and I said, um, uh, um, do you remember me? And he said, yes. And I said, will you pretend you're my boyfriend? <laughs> and uh, he said, okay. And so I, I drag him over to the science fiction writer and I said, uh, um, this is my boyfriend. He's really mad. Uh, I gotta go home. And then I said to him, run! And he goes, oh! And we take, uh, we just held hands and we ran across the park, all the way across the park and, and to a stoop and uh, sat there out of breath and I said, oh, thank you. You saved my life. <laughs> and, um, and I said, uh, my name is Patty. And he said, well, my name is Bob. And I looked at him and I said, um, you don't seem like a Bob to me. Is it all right if I call you Robert? And, uh, and he smiled and I called him Robert ever since. And so did everybody else, so. And it turned out he was tripping on acid. 
Yes, he was tripping on acid. Uh, well, he kept smiling, and he was he smiled for the next five hours, and I thought. <laughs> But we, we, we just had such an instant connection. We were both the exact, he, he was just a month older than I. Um, we both wanted to be artists. We were both a bit down on our luck. And uh, we just hit it off. And we talked all night. We just walked around all night and talked and then never parted. So you didn't take your mother's advice the second time? Well, by the, by the time <laughs> I, I went somewhere with him, I felt like after talking all night, we had become real friends. So, yeah. Um, uh, it was uh, um, it was it was such an interesting uh, this whole thing starting out the the afternoon with a stranger and actually meeting another stranger, although I had already met him just by chance twice. But the difference between the the first guy, the science fiction guy, was a true stranger. But as I say in the book. Robert really was never a stranger. It's almost like we always knew each other. Yeah, and there's a great description to that. And go around all the small flats, really beat up flats as you're trying to get your stuff together. But he was always he was very ambitious, wasn't he, when you, from the start? Yeah, Robert was a very hard worker. I mean, um, he had, and both of us, I mean, we both came from, uh, he was more from a middle-class family, but we both came from strong work ethic families. Both of us were used to working. Um, I wound up being the one who was better at keeping a job, but he worked for all day long. If I worked at, a, at the bookstore and he stayed home, he didn't just hang out and smoke pot or something. He was working on drawing after drawing, uh, making designs trying to figure out what he really wanted to do was to do something that no one else could do. And he really had a lot of ambition to hit it big and get me a beautiful place to live. And just like any young fellow's dream, you know, for his girl. And my dream for him was to support him as an artist because I knew he was great. But you, you were also ambitious as an artist at the time. Well, yes. Or you had ambitions to do your own art. I had, uh, yes, I've always wanted to write, to draw, to do my work. But I wasn't so ambitious to be successful really fast. He seemed really in a hurry. Um, I just wanted to do something great someday. You know, I wanted to write something as great as Peter Pan or um, just aspire to do drawings is, you know, to learn from Picasso and to learn from uh, de Kooning. And so I, I, I had no problem being a long-term apprentice <laughs> where he was ready. He was ready right away. But not fully formed, because this is, this is a few years before the, he's actually taking photographs. He was actually yes, he didn't start taking, this is in 67, he didn't start taking photographs till 1970. And... Um, he, he, he had no desire to be a photographer. He wanted, he was very much like Duchamp, um, doing uh, constructions, uh, hopefully installations, uh, working with found materials and uh, doing a certain amount of drawing and painting. Um, he liked Joseph Cornell and the Surrealists. And that's the direction I thought he would go into. And he really just started taking photographs as components within his big collages, but he fell in love with photography. 
Was it more because he couldn't actually afford to buy the magazines anymore? Because he used to buy the magazines on newsstands, but he didn't have the money well, to buy them. Well, I mean, yeah, we were... You've read everything. You've I have, really yeah. read <laughs> I've swatted it up. <laughs> <laughs> you really... Uh, well, Robert, I mean, his... You know, first he started with very Catholic themes, and then he worked with freaks for a while, and then sort of sailors, and then he moved toward, um, you know, um, male subjects and uh, more sexual subjects. And um, he would buy, they would have specific magazines for this, something I had never seen in South Jersey. (laughs) And, um, but the problem is they were very expensive and they were in sealed, they were sealed. And you couldn't, he wasn't, he didn't really want them to use as uh, inspiration for (laughs) self-relief. He really wanted to use them to cut pictures out to put in collages. But sometimes, you know, we would pay $5 for a magazine, which I was only making $60 a week. $5 was a lot of money. And if he bought a magazine that had no useful pictures, he'd get very depressed. And I kept saying, you should take your own pictures and put them so you don't have to rely on magazine images. And finally, he did that. But even then, uh, working with the Polaroid camera, we couldn't really afford much film. And so he had to be very frugal in his picture taking, which I think informed the rest of his life. Because when you only have 10 shots and you have to have that last maybe a whole week, every picture has to be useful. If he wasted a picture, he actually would get depressed if he would waste one of those shots. And this was very useful later. For instance, when he took the cover of Horses, uh, he did it in 12 shots. It was number eight. And, uh, you know, we didn't spend hours motor driving or he had no assistant. It was just him, his camera, and by the eighth shot, he had it because he had learned to be economical, know what he wanted, make certain his light was proper, and get the shot. Yeah, I was noticed that the exhibition, because the pictures, he has a very clear idea of what he's going to do. It's like a painting more than a photograph. Yes, his sense of composition was very Catholic, very ordered, very classic. He was not a snapshot taker. He wasn't interested in snapshots. They bored him. Uh, He really... He was an artist. I I really never think of Robert as a photographer. He was an artist who took photographs. Um, He approached everything as an artist, whether it was the very hardcore photographs, uh, the S&M photographs, flowers, portraits. Um, He approached everything as an artist. And uh, um, he wasn't... uh, um, interested in trying to catch people off guard or, or reveal anything about anyone. He wanted, he wanted this subject, whether it was the subject of a very uh, uh, hardcore situation or um, uh, um, a mother and child, a movie star, no matter, you know, a friend, whoever, he wanted them to be pleased, to be happy with the result. And... Uh, Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, I can see that. Just rambling. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you're here for. Yeah. So, so when, you have you, a very handsome face. That's, that's very close. You're making me blush now. Yeah. 
<laughs> we never met before, so it just... Yeah, yeah you wouldn't believe it, would you? Yeah. <laughs> so um, so when, you, when you started going out or living together, you, were you egging each other on? Because he's very encouraging for your art as well, wasn't he? Robert was... Um, I think... Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking a lot about this, especially... Did anyone see the Alice in Wonderland movie? It's, uh, well, I love it. I saw it three times. Um, what I love about this movie is um, Alice, uh, you know, of course it's its own story, but Alice, in the course of the movie, a young Victorian girl uh, being pressured by peers, having peer pressure all around, uh, by the end of the movie, she um, discovers uh, her own self-confidence and becomes herself. And uh, that's sort of what it was like for me coming to New York City. It was like I fell down the rabbit hole and uh, almost like, um, and through Robert, I really, uh, he really was interested in me um, having all the self-confidence that he had. Robert was shy, very, very shy. Um, he was a bit nervous and, um, and uh, always worried about money and things like that, but he never lacked in self-confidence. He knew he was an artist. He knew he was good. He knew he was going to do something important. Um, and I was the opposite. I was hardly shy at all. I was, you know, I, I uh, had very little fears. I didn't really worry about anything but I wasn't, I didn't have the confidence in myself as an artist that he did. And he would not rest until he instilled that confidence so that I knew I could kill the Jabberwocky. <laughs> so um, uh, that's what that, I, I was thinking and looking at that film that Robert gave me that kind of confidence and it's never went away. So I still have it. So was he, was he trying to encourage you to do certain types of art or was just anything that just to please Well, he, first of all, he just wanted me to feel his strength and his belief in himself. Uh, we work side by side doing drawings. We sort of, sometimes we collaborated on things. Um, we collaborated on making installations together. And after a time, you know, we were very, uh, it was almost alchemical. Um, the funny thing about Robert, though, is that Robert was very interested in uh, doing something that uh, no one else had done. And in doing that, he took very uh, difficult paths. Uh, for instance, you know, some of his early famous photographs, uh, his uh, uh, sexually oriented photographs, very difficult photographs. And I always thought it was funny as Robert was taking these pictures, which some were difficult to look at. Um, I would be doing my songs with a lot of poetry and music and he'd say, Patty, your, your songs, are, they're too confrontational. Uh, they're, uh, uh, they're not commercial enough. Because uh, uh, he really wanted me, once I started singing, to have a hit record. I didn't care about that. I was thinking I wanted to merge poetry and rock and roll and do something new, uh, just as he wanted to do something new. And he's saying, no, 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 like a Motown song. Uh, can't you write something? Can't you write something like Smokey Robinson? And uh, 
and it, but it was very funny. But it, he just wanted me to be successful. But all of these little things, uh, we both had a sense of humor and, um, uh, you know, joked about these things. But he really, really wanted to see me uh, do well. And the irony of it was, in the course of our early life in the 70s, I, who was like not so ambitious to, um, you know, do well in the world, uh, wound up having success before him. And then he would tease me about it. You know, I talk in the book, and he'd go, Patty, you got famous before me. You weren't <laughs> supposed to do that. And, uh, but he well caught up with me. You say about the photos you've taken before were quite graphic, but the way he was, he was his aesthetic of thing, more the actual content, wasn't it? He didn't, he didn't actually see them as being heavy pictures, did he? Well, he knew that certain pictures, was, he did know that some of the S&M pictures were very heavy. He did know that, and he didn't insist that people look at these pictures. He knew they weren't for everyone, but he also knew that he had done something that no one else had done, which was take a very, very difficult subject, an area of human consent that most of us, at least for my part, don't comprehend and raise it in the level of art. And, um, but he, he did many things in this area, but that was the one thing that he did that no one else had done. And, but he really looked at, in, in terms of what you're saying, he really looked at all of his work in the same manner. Um, there's a little, I think it's in the book, uh, he was having a show, one of his earliest shows, and so there were pictures of male genitalia, portraits, and flowers. And his parents never came to see his work. His father was against him being an artist. He was a Catholic military man. His mother uh, was a really wonderful woman, but a housewife and very strict Catholic. And for some reason, she decided to come to New York City and see his show. <laughs> and she called him up and she said, Robert, I'm coming to see your show. And he said to me, my mother's coming. We have, to, we have to get to the gallery. And we got to the gallery, and he started taking down all the pictures of cops. <laughs> and he was putting flowers up instead. And someone said to him, oh, you know, you're compromising for your mother. And he said, no, not really. He said, to me, the, all the pictures are the same. They're, I mean, obvious different content, but the same attention to composition, light, um, uh, a certain archness to all of these pictures. And he said, uh, I'm just being respectful to my mother. And, uh, but he said, believe me, um, she, she'll be uncomfortable anyway. <laughs> and uh, she came to the exhibit and she's looking at everything. She's not saying a word. And we're standing there and she comes up and she said, Robert, you take really weird flower pictures. <laughs> she, she didn't know why they were weird, but his flowers are very, very arc. They're very um, sexual, uh, some of them, as nature is. Um, anyway, it was very funny, just as he predicted. So she was actually slightly offended by the flowers. So. <laughs> There's a few things in the book about that, the way, um, even though he's doing art, it's on one level very confrontational. 
he seems to be like really wanting to please his parents who are quite strict because he said like, he's like the little altar boy really which kind of leads to like the just kids and the naivety of the whole situation well i mean robert was brought up he was really a very sweet kid he was one of seven children like a middle child um he was an altar boy and uh but he got uh seduced by art at a young age and i think uh many of the things that were in him that he suppressed his own homosexuality which i never ever um uh, detected in in him um uh his uh att- attraction to um you know bizarre difficult subject matter whether it be freaks or um um uh, pornography or, or what one could call pornography pornography as art um all of these things were greatly suppressed in a very suppressed upbringing i mean it was a good family they were well taken care of but it was a with all its religion uh and everything a bit cold i thought his father was a bit cold i really liked his father um but he was a bit it, it was just a cold atmosphere and i i think that uh he there was something robert liked to make people happy i mean he was his own self and he was no wuss but he you know socially he he had good social graces um when he was taking photographs he wanted to make certain people like the photograph and and if they if they thought they looked terrible um he would reshoot it uh he was very uh, considerate of other people's feelings and um and i think also having such a strong catholic upbringing where there are such good and evil or such are really there's a, such a polarity um that that polarity affected him throughout his life and um but you know it wasn't i don't know i can't since i had very open minded parents so i actually can't imagine what it would be like to have to hide this everything from your parents you know your own ambition to be an artist he had to hide that and then he had to hide you know eventually his sexuality he had to hide the images that he shot because they were too difficult uh i came from an upbringing where even if my parents were disappointed or a little shocked at anything i did they would take a deep breath and try to see it from a bigger picture and be supportive so uh you know it's it's hard to imagine that struggle for me so just to talk about good and evil because for him was the arts a way of exploring what maybe his parents would perceive as evil or something of the dark yes, side yes i never you're right i i hadn't thought of that you know for me i had so much you know i i had a huge you know my my mental playground could go anywhere it wanted so you know sometimes i might explore that area but I didn't I wasn't obsessed with a certain area because it wasn't forbidden to me. So you're right, that's a good point. Yeah. And then the other bit I realized in the book and I guess everyone likes the book is when you're living in the Chelsea hotel and just the cast of characters in there. So if you could just talk about it. Is it what it sounded like an amazing place to be at that time? Well, it what I mean Robert and I in 1969 we had been through a lot. We he was starting to recognize, you know, his his inner nature needed to blossom um we had to deal with that 
as a young couple, and we parted for a while. And then we really didn't like being parted. And he really, God bless him, he tried again. He tried, it, it, it wasn't that he was ashamed or trying to hide his, uh, his um, uh, inner nature. It was just, he really liked, we were happy as a couple. And um, so we tried again at a very low point in our life. We had no money, he was very ill. And um, we went to the Chelsea Hotel because we had nowhere to live because I had heard that uh, Stanley Bard, who ran the Chelsea, would take art for rent. You know, he had all this art hanging in the lobby, some of it really bad. <laughs> to his credit, he had a Larry Rivers, but you know, a lot, most of it was really bad. And you know, I had looked at it and I thought, our work's better than that. So I took Robert there and Robert was so very ill and sitting on a chair and I, marched right in, you know, and I had our portfolios and told this guy, you know, that Robert was going to be one of the most important artists in America, and I was pretty good too, and, uh, <laughs> and he didn't buy it, um, but what he was impressed with is most of the people at the Chelsea really didn't have any real employment. People were always, you know, hiding because they didn't have their rent money, but I had a job. I, I had a job pending. I was going back to my bookstore, uh, Scribner's, which I would go back and forth to for several years. And as soon as he heard I had a job in a good bookstore, he said, all right. He gave us the smallest room. It was just about, it was so, it, it had no bathroom. It had a little iron bed and a little, a little bureau, really tiny little room, but he gave us the room and, uh, <coughs> I went to the bookstore, got my job back, and we began a new life. And the Chelsea Hotel in 1969, um, first of all, you, as you walk in, and before you walk in, there's a plaque uh, that said that uh, Dylan Thomas, from this building, Dylan Thomas sailed away into a, his next place. So for a girl who loves poetry, imagining D Dylan Thomas having his last uh, hours in this hotel and writing his last things, you know, that was so, so unbelievable. But also, Bob Dylan had written Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Um, there were so many uh, artists and poets who lived there. Uh, Allen Ginsberg was there. Um, Arthur C. Clarke was, uh, had a, a place there. Virgil Thompson had a suite of rooms. Shirley Clark, sometimes Deanna Ar Arbus would come in and out. At any given day, um, you would see the most amazing people. And uh, sometimes, especially young writers, they'll accuse me of name dropping and thinking that I made this up. But for me, it was just life back then. You know, you just, they were the people who lived in our, that's where we lived. And it was a hotel as well. So coming in and out of the hotel could be the Allman Brothers, Jefferson Airplane. Uh, I met Janis Joplin there. And um, in those days, they weren't any different than us. We were all sort of the same age, or maybe they were a bit older, but we all dressed the same. We all listened to the same music, and they didn't have like entourages, and uh, there wasn't the sense of celebrity back then. So you knew like somebody, oh, they're, you know, 
rock star. They have, you know, Grace Slick, she did White Rabbit, but they weren't so inaccessible. I mean, it didn't bother them or anything, but they were just there. We are all at the same bar. And unless you knew, it was very difficult to detect, to de detect who was what, because we were all part of that 60s, early 70s revolution. Were you actually aware of its reputation before you moved into it? I only knew that, uh, I knew that Charles Dickens had stayed there and Oscar Wilde had stayed there. <laughs> I knew that Dylan Thomas had stayed there. Of course, Chelsea Girls, um, the Andy Warhol movie was shot there. And I knew that Bob Dylan had lived there. So yes, I was aware of its history. I wasn't aware of how accessible it could be. And, uh, you know, and it was $55 a week to stay there. I made $65 a week at the time. <laughs> so that meant $10 for food. I walked back and forth to work. Robert would do jobs, uh, you know, moving pianos or whatever, sometimes making a necklace and selling it. But we were really scraping away. But um, New York was so cheap to live in, we could have got a cheaper apartment. But once we got there and realized that, you know, for me, it was like, like I said in the book, like a university. You know, at any given time, I, I had instruction by Gregory Corso. Allen Ginsberg would talk to me about poetry. You, you got to sit in the lobby and talk with some of the best minds of my generation. <laughs> and uh, so it was worth the struggle to stay there. Yeah, because you spent a lot of time sitting in the lobby. Yes, a yeah. lot of time. Well, yeah. our room was so small. Yeah. I mean, we'd be sitting like, the, I mean, there was, there was nothing we could do in the room but just sleep. So. Um, I spent a lot of time in the lobby, yeah. Which is great for meeting all those characters. Yes, yeah. I, I just, I, I was the meet and greet girl. There I was. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then from, from that, I can't remember the, the chronology, but you kind of started hanging out with the Warhol crowd. And that's quite interesting descriptions of that, about um, the little room at the back of Max's. Oh, Max's, Kansas City. Well, I wasn't really interested in, the, in that particular crowd. Um, but Robert was very interested. He really wanted to meet Andy Warhol, and he really wanted, because he felt that they had certain things in common. And just as I um, gravitated more toward like Greg, my mentors, Gregory Corso and, and uh, the poets and, and, um, <coughs> and Jim Carroll, all of these people, Robert gravitated more toward the um, more unusual, I mean, there were a lot of transvestites, uh, very talented transvestites who were actresses. Um, he just gravitated toward that world to photograph. Uh, he enjoyed their company, and he was very interested in, in Andy Warhol. Um, Robert wasn't much for hero worship. He wasn't really beguiled by people uh, like I could be, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but Andy Warhol um, was, was the one that he was interested in learning from. And, uh, but he, he didn't really, Andy Warhol wasn't actually there though, was he? No, but his world, uh, Max's Kansas City was, was the portal to, portal to that world. And eventually he met Andy and fine, but it, it really Andy um, was inspirational to Robert, but Robert was his own person. He really 
He was so intent on doing something that Andy hadn't done, that no one had done, that he was, he was going to, he was honor bound to go past them. I like the descriptions of going there because you've, it sounds like you're really awkward and you, and I like that. It sounds great, it's so human, you know, because anyone else who writes it up is how cool it all was. But you just sound oh, no, really... No. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like every scene, when you write about a scene, any scene, uh, or you see pictures that look so cool, but actually, we're all awkward, you know, we're all, um, you know, that scene, nobody had any money. Um, everybody was trying to be something, trying to get somewhere, breaking new ground. And uh, um, for myself, you know, I was still, even though I was sophisticated in that I was very well read, uh, probably more well read than most of the people there. But I was from rural South Jersey. I had a thick Jersey accent. Um, I was uh, I was not very sophisticated, and uh, not really uh, uh, not highly social. So uh, you know, I, I didn't quite fit into that atmosphere. But you know, I, I found my way. Did Robert fit in, or was he make himself fit in? Robert more? fit in more than I did. Well, because Robert was again more. He was a very good listener. More. Uh, <laughs> I think in some ways a better person. I mean, I wasn't a bad person then, but I was just like, I, I was interested in my own tra trajectory and my own imagination and books and, you know, and uh, he was actually interested in the human stories of everyone and, uh, and although he was shy, uh, interested in uh, listening to other people's thoughts and, you know, and I was like, uh, uh, <laughs> A brat, really. Um, I think a lot more judgmental. Or if, if something didn't didn't interest me, I couldn't open myself as much as he could. I learned. I learned to be a little better socially through Robert. And um, uh, maybe you could see through the bullshit more than he could. Well, it's it's not even that it was bullshit because. Uh, it, for me, it wasn't like it was bullshit because the people were all genuine and genuinely struggling. It's just that it was like high school, you know? It was just like peer pressure, you know, who is gonna be the cutest at the table or the most popular at the table or who could sit here and next to this person because you weren't cool enough to sit. And you know, I just like thought, I, I already went through this in high school with the cheerleaders and the football players and you know, I didn't wanna have to go through that again. So for me, the idea of this, the, this social, socialization and class things, whether it's in the art society or, or high society, it just all seemed like another form of high school. Yeah. But of course, I had read Holden Caulfield about four times, you know, for <laughs> so Catcher in the Rye was it, you know, yeah. yeah. So I, that's, I used to think of myself as Holden Caulfield at the Chelsea because <laughs> I was, you know, young, judgmental, less patient than maybe I could have been. So, so what was your, you touched on this before, but what was your relationship like with Robert as he, you know, he, he became homosexual and he came back and then he started doing the, doing the Rent Boy thing, wasn't he? Where he'd take him to get make money and take pictures. How, how do you hold that together? It's, it's, a, it's unusual situation. Well, uh, Robert and I, in the end, you know, when I said when we first met, we were like, we had never been strangers. 
it was, of course, very difficult to get through the first uh, uh, hurdle of, um, you know, realizing that he had another persuasion. But I didn't like life without Robert, and he didn't like life without me, uh, because what we shared was so deep. It had to do with our work, really believing that the other understood our work better than anybody, and that we really had this mutual need for each other to validate our work, and we trusted one another, and we both knew how to make each other laugh, and um, we had a lot to save. And, you know, with some, you know, and it's just normal that sometimes, especially when you're young, a relationship is built basically on the physical, and when that sort of deteriorates, people drift apart. And our physical life was very nice, but without it, we still had so much more to save. You know, there, there was just, that wasn't the heart. You know, our physical relationship was important, but it was not the core of our relationship. And, uh, and it's proof now because I still have it. I still experience it. I still feel him with me. I still feel the confidence he instilled in me. And I collaborate with him in my mind. I can still hear him laugh when I'm in certain situations that he would, th would think was funny. And I'm still learning. You know, I've hopefully learned to be, you know, a less judgmental person and, uh, and be a little kinder, because he was really kind. Yeah, but that's what I thought about the book. It's actually a love story more than anything. It's, it's quite a beautiful love story in a very kind of modern day kind of setting, isn't it? Well, I said, uh, you know, my late husband, I really believe, was the love of my life. And he was my husband, the fa father of my children. But Robert was the artist of my life. And that has its great, great importance. So... Uh, I know how to place these two men in my life, uh, the first and the last, uh, the first man that was important to me and the last man. And uh, I, I, uh, they, they both, I carry them both with, within me. So when you started doing the poetry in, into the music, again, again, he's very encouraging at this, wasn't he? And you say, you're saying, you should, why didn't you write a Motown song? But, <laughs> but did, he, did he have an idea of how you can make this work? Because, he, because at the time, I mean, people do it all the time now, make poetry into art, into music, but he was groundbreaking at that Well, point. Robert always wanted me, he liked the way I performed. I mean, I performed for Robert. I sang for him, I sang him little lullabies, I made up songs for him, I'd read my poems to him. And he wa always wanted people to see me um, uh, uh, it was all. It was actually, um, you know, at the, toward the end of uh, our tenure at the Chelsea, I had met Sam Shepard, and it was really Sam Shepard that pushed me even further. Um, was it Sam to, Shepard who told you you should improvise? Or was that Gregory Corson? Well, he, 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 no, Sam Shepard really. Uh, I improvised when I wrote, but I didn't really know how to improvise. Um, on stage or anything, because I never did it. And Sam and I wrote a play together, and I remember he said, uh, let's leave this section for improvisation, so someday when other actors, they can improvise. And I 
I said, improvisation, what'll I say? And he said, well, just say anything. We'll, we'll argue in poetry. And I, I said, well, how do we do that? What if I make a mistake? And he said, you can't make a mistake if you're improvising. <laughs> you know, if you miss a beat, you create a new beat. And Which is that, a brilliant thing to learn. And in that moment, I got it. And I've improvised. It's been part of, I found actually that I was quite facile in it. And, um, you know, he really, when I did my first poetry reading and <coughs> I didn't want it to be boring, um, Sam said, why don't you have some guitar behind you? And I had met Lenny Kay and asked him to do some sort of sonic uh, uh, voicings on the guitar. And we developed what we, what we did. Robert was really happy about that, but he, when it got too weird, you know, he'd say, can you put a beat to it? You know? <laughs> but, um, but Robert loved Motown music and he loved, uh, he loved to dance. And he really wanted me to, uh, to write a great dance song. Something I really have never achieved. And uh, not because I didn't wanna, I just, it wasn't, you know, that's its own art, that's its own calling. But, uh, um, but when I finally did have a, a hit song in 1978, I don't think anybody was happier than him. He was so, so happy that I had finally, uh, finally done that. And um, so. When, when you both made it, the relationship still stayed the same. It's like a, an encouraging, an artistic kind Oh yeah, of we, Robert and I had no, I mean, we would joke around, like if he was doing better than me, go, um, he would he would tease me like oh uh, you know my uh, my art exhibit got more attention than your job you know at CBGBs or something we just joke but really truthfully we had no jealousy we had no envy of each other we both knew who we who we who we were and um, I was only jealous of him one time and that's. Uh, um, I always wanted to be in an encyclopedia, and because uh, I love encyclopedias. And Robert got into the encyclopedia, and he didn't care at all about encyclopedias, and uh, never read one, didn't care about them. And he got into the Encyclopedia Britannica before me. I was really annoyed. <laughs> Did you get in in the end? Yeah, but not as big a thing as he got. <laughs> But, uh, but it was all in fun. I, even when we were younger, even at our worst points, uh, we, he was not um, a fighter. It doesn't mean, he, I mean, he fought for his work. Uh, he just, um, you know, we didn't have like screaming, yelling battles or things. We would be more likely to sit in silence or, or cry before we would be yelling at each other. And... Uh, it, it doesn't mean that we didn't have a lot of difficult times. We had a lot of difficult times, but we always found our way through them, always. Do you want to talk about the photos he took for the record covers? Because they are so iconic. Were they just basically his idea or his portrayal of you? Or was it like a team? Uh, the way Robert and I took pictures was so organic. You know, I mean, because I was his first model, so, you know, we had... We had so much history, and you know, I just when I got a record deal uh, and was going doing horses, I just said, "You'll take the picture for the cover, right?" And he said, "Yeah." And 
we had a deadline. They said, oh, we have to hand it in at a certain time. And he said, all right, tomorrow I'll come pick you up and we'll go um, uh, to his patron's apartment because it had a lot of light. And we'll take a picture. And the only thing he said was, please, if you're going to wear a white shirt, no. Don't wear one that has stains all over it, you know, like <laughs> hot sauce or, you know, olive oil or something, because I was very messy. And I promised him I'd have a clean white shirt. So uh, that's Robert's biggest influence on the cover, is that my shirt <laughs> is clean. And um, we didn't discuss it or anything. He, all we discussed is, you see, like, that sh- like these shadows. There was a... He noticed one day at his, his friend's apartment that there was this triangle of shadow just the way the light came in in the window, and he wanted to get that triangle in the picture. It's a, a triangle of light, actually. And he just wanted it in the picture. That's all. That, that was his goal. And my goal was, you know, to have a very Baudelarian look, you know, black and white. I had a white shirt with a little black ribbon, sort of like the way Baudelaire dressed in some pictures, and uh, very French. Um, And, you know, he came and got me, and we ate. We went there. I stood against the wall. He asked me to take my jacket off after a few shots. And I had my jacket, and I just... I wanted my jacket on because it had a little horse pin on it, and the record was called Horses. And uh, he wanted me to take the jacket off because he liked the white of the shirt. And th- all this was in a matter of seconds, and so I just hmm, flung it over my sh- my shoulder, sort of like Frank Sinatra in uh, I think it's Pal Joey or uh, no, The Joker is Wild. At the end of Joker is Wild, Frank Sinatra. It has, you know, all these ups and downs in his life, and he philosophically takes his shirt, flings it over his shoulder, and walks into the lamplight into, <laughs> instead of the sunset. And uh, so I was just did that. And the, I noticed that the, I did it just right because the horse pin showed, <laughs> and he took the picture, and it was the only one like that. And he took 12, and... He took a picture and he said, okay, got it. And I said, because, you know, he wasn't using Polaroids or anything and he had no assistant. It was just me and him. And I said, how do you know? (laughs) He said, I just know. (laughs) And he did. And it ended up being one of the most iconic shots. Yeah, I never thought of it. You know, it's just Robert was taking my picture. He did it hundreds of times. So, uh, you know, he brought me the contact sheet a couple days later and he said... uh, I looked at them and I liked one over here. And he goes, no, this is, he said, this is the one with the magic. And I said, okay. <laughs> because uh, he was the only person I would defer to in something like that. And uh, he was right. He chose the right one. Was it the same process with the later shots as well? Um, well, I didn't write about this in the book uh, because it wasn't the time period I was working with. But uh, just to prove that he was right, Um, when I did my last album of the 70s called Wave, uh, I had written a song for my husband, Fred, Fred, called Frederick, and it has doves in it. Um, uh, And I wanted the picture, I wanted to be holding a dove. And so Robert um, had a guy bring doves to his loft space, and um, I went there, 
and it was our most, uh, it was our biggest production because there was trained doves. And, um, and I knew that it would be my last album. I knew uh, it was sort of a farewell. No one else knew, but I knew it. And Robert intuited this. And he took the pictures with the dove. And he said, I, I have it. And then he said, let me take this other picture. And he had me sort of just uh, lean against the wall, sort of like that. And I had this white dress on. And uh, in the same place that we had shot horses was the same place. And then he got the pictures. And he showed me one picture. And he said, there's the picture you wanted. And I said, oh, it's perfect. You know, I had the dove. I was so happy with it. And he said, but this is the one with the magic. And he showed me the other one. But I was so fixated on the doves that I wanted that one. And uh, he let, I said, come on, you picked the horse's cover. Let me pick this one. He said, okay. But what I did was I put an insert inside the album and put his choice on the cover of the insert. Now when I look at them, I know that his picture, sorry, I feel like I'm good. When I, sorry. When I look at these two pictures, I understand his wisdom because he knew that I really, really loved my future husband and that I was about to also um, give up a lot and uh, leave the life I was living, uh, my band, my so-called career, a lot of things. And uh, in this photograph that he chose, you see this submissive, but very honorably submissive power of love, where the other one is, is more uh, conceptual. And uh, I just, he just knew. You know, it's, it just, uh, uh, it's amazing because you were so close even then. He's understanding yes. you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have a, 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 another, a, a, you know, it's just equally touching the last cover he did for me was Dream of Life. And uh, I, was, I was pregnant with my second child when he took the picture. And first he took a studio picture, and he was not well, but certainly well enough to take the photograph. And he took a very nice photograph of me. I had a clarinet. I was well, nice dressed. Um, I looked cool. And, uh, and then he had also taken a picture of me in California, um, not a typical picture, where I was outside. We rarely took pictures outside. And uh, I had my hair braided, and you know, my, the sense of my pregnancy was there in my face, uh, the sense of that. And he sent me the first picture with the clarinet. And I looked at it, I knew it was a good picture. But I didn't feel tremendously moved by it. I just knew it was a good photograph. And then he, he, I, he called me and asked me how I liked it. And I said, oh, I like it. And he said, no, you don't. He said, I know it's a good picture, but I know what you want. He said, I like that picture. Uh, you look really good in it, which I did. Um, he said, but I have the picture you want. So he sent me another picture, which was not 
as recognizable as a Robert picture and not really much, it wasn't so much in his liking, but it was that picture of me, you know, with my braids outside in full sun and you can sense that, I, that I'm carrying life. He sent me the picture I wanted. You know, he, he knew without talking about it that I would want that picture. It has a very Frida Kahlo look and it's a little more down to earth. And it was really the picture that I wanted in my head. And that was the last cover he did. And um, much truer to who I was than a studio picture. And um, so. In those years you were in Detroit, were you in touch with them, still bouncing ideas? No, no when I lived in Detroit, um, I lived a very secluded life with my husband and children. And uh, our communication uh, was uh, very limited. And, um, but as soon as, uh, when Robert was, uh, became ill, I called him immediately. And from then on till his death for the next two years, um, I talked to him every day. And my husband, who was very private and um, normally not so generous with, with my time, um, drove us back and forth, a 14-hour drive, because we didn't have a lot of money then, back and forth from Detroit to New York every time he got sick, every time he was in the hospital, every time I was worried. He participated in uh, um, making it available for me to see Robert. I talked to Robert every day, and um, he drove me back to New York for Robert's memorial. So uh, those last couple of years, we were very deeply in touch. What was our relationship? Were they friends at all? They, they, like, they mutually respected each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, my husband... Uh, they're quite Ro different people. But I have to say, well, Robert respected. My husband was very intelligent, very formidable. Um, he just... People just took to him. He, he just had a very... Uh, he was very dignified, had a lot of charm, and, but he was tough. You know, he was, he was, a, he was a man, you know. <laughs> a Detroit fella, but uh, also very sensitive. Robert had enough, Robert was a guy too. I mean, whatever his persuasion, I always thought of Robert as extremely masculine and he knew how to deal with men, you know, and he had a respect for Fred. And Fred really respected Robert as an artist. I think perhaps sometimes he, uh, you know, um, Normally, he would not uh, prefer, or it would not be possible for me to be, uh, have such a, a relationship with another fella. But he, he grew to really care for Robert and really did respect our friendship and deeply respected him as an artist. But, it, you know, fate is very funny. Um, you know, when I left Michigan in 19... Um, when I left New York in 1979 and went to Michigan and lived such a secluded life with my husband, a lot of people didn't understand that or they criticized it or uh, whatever they thought. 
But as it turned out, my husband had a short lifeline, just as Robert did. Robert lived till he was 42, and Fred lived till he was 44. And those years that I spent living a very quiet, secluded life with Fred were the only years I'd ever have with him. So I think I did made the right choice in spending those years with him. Oh yeah, definitely. Do you, you know, what do you think Robert would have made of being older, like an elder statesman? Robert would have been so. He would have been so cool. You know, he was. He would have aged well. He would have been doing greater work. I mean, I think uh, we were very similar in that way. I mean, I think that. He would be more handsome than I turned. You know, I. You know, he was the better-looking one of the two of us. But um, and he was quite beautiful. But m- more than that, he uh, he was so gifted, and he was just beginning. I mean, people look at his body of work and think that he did his body of work. But uh, like myself, when I think of the work that I've done since I was 42 years old. Uh, without that, I would have felt like such an incomplete worker. Yes, I'm sure I did things in the 70s that seemed to have some impact to some people, but I would shudder to think of just that being the only work I ever did. And I know that Robert would have done um, uh, great installations, returned to his more scope, because he told me what his plans were. I know that he felt that he had done basically everything he wanted with photography and wanted to start doing uh, assemblages again and uh, big installations and rooms and uh, designing furniture and uh, moving into some architectural work. So he was hardly done as an artist. But... uh, um, Will he become more mainstream, you think, or still a little walk on the wild side? Robert didn't think about that. You know, Robert, for Robert, he did his work, and look at him now. I mean, he did some of the most difficult pictures of my generation, but he's one of our most famous photographers. You know, some of Robert's work um, is, works very well with the mainstream. I've seen Robert's flowers in hotels hanging in, you know, hotel bedrooms. Uh, Robert, just like I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, I... I I strive as an artist, but when I had a hit song, I was really happy. I'd have them every year if I could. (laughs) (laughs) Not just because it's lucrative, but it's really, uh, some art is not for everyone. Some art, uh, some poetry is difficult. Uh, It's difficult to comprehend. Um, Some photographs difficult to look at. Some music uh, complex. Some things are not for everyone, but, and the artist strives for that because sometimes that's where we have our highest art. But some of the times the most beautiful experience is when you communicate with everybody. I love, you know, I, when I'm performing, I really like to do something, um, to improvise something uh, complex, something unexpected. Sometimes it's things, something people don't like or they get quite bored because they don't want to listen to an eight-minute clarinet solo <laughs> or nine minutes of feedback on the guitar. And I enjoy that anyway. But, you know, when, you, when we start the first 
you know, we start because the night and the people get excited and then they sing along and you feel this communal sense of joy. There's nothing like that. Mm. So, you know, mainstream, the word mainstream has a bad... Yeah, I didn't mean so much. No, I know what you're saying, but I'm saying the word mainstream does not have to be evil no um, I think it's great when great art gets in the mainstream yeah well it's it's because the idea is to lift everyone up not doing you know doing your work just for a chosen few you're doing it for everyone hopefully everyone will get something out of it I was more interested would he he still be capable of veering towards his little walk of the wild side and just you know well I think that Robert uh, one of the things he said at the end of his life was about his more difficult pictures he said that he was really glad he took them because he felt somebody should, and he was proud of what he had done, but he couldn't take them now. He wouldn't, it, it wasn't the right time period. In the time period of AIDS, in the time period that he was, you know, at, and, and also he was at a different age, a different sense of his own evolution, it wouldn't have been the right time to take those pictures. I think that Robert, um, was would never get stuck in one area. He liked. Um, he would be very very happy with his success. That's cool. On that point, uh, thanks to Patty. He's going to sing Thank a couple you. of songs for you in a minute. Yeah. yeah. You have been listening to the John Rob tapes with me, John Rob. Brought to you by Lush and Loud and the War, this podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. If you enjoy this, please retweet it and tell your mates. Thanks for listening. Chances are, if you like this, you'll like other podcasts made by Lush. So you should probably check out Tiny Revolutions, a podcast where Tiff Stevenson chats with other comedians about whether comedy can be a force for social change. Subscribe now.